Welcome to another episode of Dr. Scoff and the Prof. We're here in my office uh, at Liverpool Hope University. I'm Clay Granston, a lecturer in marketing. My name is Brian Sevens, Associate Professor in History. And uh, what have we got for everyone this week? Uh, today's theme is Feeding History. Feeding History. And this is part of a brilliant trip we did, which was supported by the university, where we went to London. We met some uh, amazing people. And one of the people we met, uh, as we'll discover in this episode, Yi Chen, she's the curator of this exhibition. Well, it's a taster exhibition, we should caveat sure. this. It's not a major exhibition. It's a fairly small sort of taster exhibition called Feeding History. And right. it's about the growth of farming, sort of 10,000 years ago, and how that's evolved. But before we get, before we go over to the British Museum, we need to talk a little bit about the name of the show. Yeah, I don't like the name of the show, as regular listeners will know. So I've gone and done my usual thing. I've gone out to, to uh, the internet and asked people um, for some, some different names. Go on then, what are, what are the suggestions? Uh, first one, Sushi and the Banshees. Right, which is a play on the, the 80s uh, pop, prog, rock, yeah. what, no, punk, punk group. Yeah. Yep, yeah. okay. I don't like that then. Not really, it's a, bit, it's a bit like a lot of these, it's a little bit laboured. Penne for your thoughts? Penne for your thoughts, that's fair. I do like a good pasta pun. It's good, isn't it? Fair, fair play. And then uh, Bigsy. Yes, Bigsy. one of our regular Bigsy. listeners, Chris Biggs, what's he come up with? <laughs> well, uh, this time of the year it's Champions League, so uh, without going too much into football, um, he, he's a, a Liverpool fan. So he did some uh, good play on words. We should, we should tell our, our international audience that you know, this, the soccer success of Liverpool soccer, FC, yeah, 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 this yeah. is what this is a play on. Indeed, indeed. indeed. So uh, the first one, Messi Garang. Very good, which is playing Lionel Messi, and uh, centre forward for Barcelona. Yeah, yeah. And Virgil van Tripe. Virgil van Tripe. Particularly good. I'm sure that the centre half of Liverpool, Virgil van Dijk, would be very pleased with that homage. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. So, again, you don't like any of them. I think Virgil Van Tripe. Van Tripe. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah, we'll go with that, yeah. Good. But anyway, are we going to get on with the, the topic here, which right. is feeding history, the growth of farming and how it's evolved? Are we going to talk to Yi Chen? We will, yeah. Yeah. Should we go now? Let's go into the British Museum, into the... Actually, we went into the bowels. We did, yeah, yeah. Deep, dark, down in behind the scenes of the British Museum, into Yi Chen's office. Very hot. It was very hot in there, actually. It was, it was really hot. But walked past some fascinating artefacts. We did, we did. Many books, sort of mine of information. Well, before we... Her office was amazing. The amount of books she had in there was... I mean, it puts your potato room to complete shame. It was... It was crawling with books, wasn't it? Yeah, so you even had ladders. Okay. Okay then. Okay, so we're here with Yi Chen, and Yi Chen is the curator of early Chinese collections at the British Museum, and the curator of the Politics of Food exhibition, which is part of the Asahi Shimbun displays, running from February to May 2019. And Yi Chen, you are Dr. Yi Chen, you're going to tell us a little bit about this exhibition. Yes, hello, I'm Yi Chen at the British Museum. We, uh, we were interested in the map uh, showing the origins of farming around the mm -hmm. world and where certain foodstuffs came from. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, we developed that map um, to show how agriculture really started from only a few places in the world with only a handful of animals and plants that can be domesticated. 
Until nowadays, it has expanded to cover more than one third of the land in the world. So we think that shows an um, the interesting thing that how this way of life expanded and really became the mainstream or the main method how we obtain food nowadays. But actually, we have. Actually, most of us may have already forgotten that how long we have been hunters and gatherers. We have been hunters and gatherers for so much longer time than we being farmers. So I think that's a map that will remind people there were more than one ways to obtain food to get our food resources. But now the main way is agriculture, and the way agriculture consume our resources and how it changed our life is really something that we need to think about. Yeah, it was very interesting. Obviously, in terms of some of the food stuffs, you have、uh, potatoes and maize from Latin America, rice from the East. But the、yeah. big concentration in the Fertile Crescent, which is the,、yes. the modern Middle East, and of course you have this ancient Egyptian plow to illustrate the importance of the growth of farming in that area. Exactly, and that or the plow also shows how the development of agriculture contributed to the、um, establishment of some greatest civilization in human history. Especially、um, plow as a tool.、Um, I think it、uh, in the exhibition it's actually showing how、yeah. um, human animals and other natural resources connected together through this particular object. Because as a plow, this is、um, one of the earliest farming tool we have. It's usually controlled by human, but it's usually powered by animals, and it work on the land. So it really shows three things getting together, linked together by this farming tool. And it is it's through this tool that human managed to turn land and animal power into some sort of resources that can manage, they can use to get to produce food for them.、Um, so I think this is a very interesting object that you can link three things together. And in terms of the growth of farming and large scale ranching, one of the pieces that you have is barbed wire and a film、yeah. about the barbed wire on the prairies in America.、Mm. I was wondering if you could tell us about that. That really,、uh, that that object stands there really to remind us that there's not only、uh, agriculture; it's not the only way that we attain food nowadays. There's still, though they're not mainstream anymore, but there are still many, many people who live on different style, a、uh, way of life. They obtain their food not by farming, but they're also herders. They're also like nomads people. So that really stands to remind us: this is not agriculture; it's not the only way that we live. Um, but also, it brings in the topic of conflicts, the conflicts between all these different way of life and how different in different ways we、uh, use our resources for food, and how these resources are shared or sometimes blocked from one group from the other group, or、um, occupied. So I think that's、um, the leading. It's really the leading object in the show, reminding us that. Um, our food problem is really not only how much we can produce and what we can produce. This also is really about a resource problem. Yeah. So obviously, the idea that food is not about just putting, you know, putting stuff in your mouth. It's about politics. It's about power relations. Yes. So this is what the show is trying to explore. It's、uh, through a, a selection, a small selection of object, but they really work as sort of a looking glass. Through which we hope to provoke people to think, and that's also what、um, Room Three,、um, this Azahi Shimbun displays, is all about. So through this small space, we hope to use our collection objects in our collections to、um, 
to respond or to confront current issues or some ongoing challenges in human society. Like food is obviously one of them. Now, after that interview with Yi Chen, which I'm sure you'll agree was fascinating. It was. Uh, I had a little uh, mosey. We're in, in the, the British capital in London. I had a little mosey uh, down to Waterloo Bridge because, as you might have seen in the news, there's been quite a lot of environmental protests taking place around the world and some really big protests taking place in London. Clay didn't come with me. He's scared of getting arrested. Um, but I went down there, you know, I've, I have no fear, um, you know, if the police were going to come for me, I was going to take that risk for the sake of the podcast. Well, I'm on my last strike, so... Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I was down there anyway, met, met a few very interesting people. I have to say, people from all different walks of life, um, they were essentially occupying central London and a lot of the bridges across London. Not all of them were the sort of, shall I say, hippie types you might expect. I had some good no. conversations with a range of people. One of the things that kept coming up was this very issue which we were talking to Yi Chen about, which is the sustainability of the planet and the farming system. And over tens of thousands of years, the growth of farming, of course, has enabled the growth of population, the growth of civilization, if you will. But I suppose some of that climate change protest was about what direction we're heading in and is growth, growth, growth a desirable model. And a lot of that is tied to the food system. And a lot of it is tied to this sort of industrial and heavily chemical system through which we get our food now. The question marks over genetically modified food, what are the long-term health effects? What's the long-term effects on the soil? Uh, What's the long-term effects on people's health and well-being and humanity of certain chemical pesticides, fertilizers, insecticides, that kind of thing? So it was quite an interesting one, really, because... We have this sort of idea of this sort of linear growth in history, don't we, of yeah. uh, settled populations, the transition from hunter-gatherer to farming, the growth of populations as an upward curve. But now perhaps we've come to this point where we're saying, well, is our farming system, our sort of heavily mechanised farming system, actually sustainable at all? And we've yeah. got to think a little bit more about where our food actually comes from. So you've got a few facts, haven't you, around this? I have, yeah. As uh, listeners will know, or... or Continuing listeners, I don't know how many we have, a good hundred or so. Hundreds, thousands, let's say tens of thousands of people. All right, that'll do. This is where I go away and uh, get some facts. So uh, I'm not going to do the jingle this week. I'm I'm working on a new one. Oh, very good. Yeah, it's quite, uh, it's multi-layered. I'm glad to hear you're using your time productively during this busy exam season. Yeah, I'm marking, I'm marking. Very good. I wanted to just uh, add on to what you were saying before, you know, in the 1700s, only 7% of the Earth's service was used for agriculture. I think Yi Chen said uh, it's around a third, it's, it's estimated yet yeah, about a third to 40% now of the mm. Earth's service is used for agriculture. And one of the reasons for that is the massive growth in the, the world population. 1900s to 2012, it jumped from 1.6 to 7 billion people. Mm. So there is a, a, you know, people are getting worried and I think mm. you should. Get worried. I do a lecture on this with students on do the you? agricultural revolution, which wow. it's not the most sexy sort of topic. No, let's be honest. Doesn't but, sound it. No, but you know, we talk about how in England actually before the, the industrial revolution is not possible without the agricultural revolution. Sure. Crop rotation. Jethro Tull, you've heard of him. A great band. Not the not the prog oh. rock band. The, okay. the the farmer. Tell me about him. Um, rotation. The the drill. The, the oh, seed drill. Okay. Uh, innovators like him. The rotation of of turnips, fertile crops which enables that population growth. And you have thinkers of that late period, like Malthus, who's terribly worried about the growth of 
world population. Goodness knows what he would have thought about seven billion. Seven billion. Well, it's, it's more than that now because that was twenty twelve, yeah. so it's it's jumped up a bit yeah. since then. So some some good facts for you. I want uh, it feeds in nicely okay. to what you've said. Right. Um, what was it in the nineties? Seven percent of the adult U.S. population thought brown cows produce chocolate milk. Do they not? No, no, they don't. No. And a pink cow doesn't produce strawberry milk either. But your milky bar, that comes from white cows, right? I think we're just going to move on from that. Okay. But I think that's a great fact, and I don't think that's just the American population. Um, I think there is always a uh, percentage of any population that... Mm. Um, well, it speaks to this disconnect, doesn't it? Yeah, between, between food people and... People don't realise yeah. where their food's coming from, yeah. and the... And the industrial and chemical processes going to. Well, I mean, I, I've done some silly things and thoughts and believed some silly things when I was younger. I used to work in a fruit and veg department and uh, a customer came in and asked me for some parsley, which we didn't have. So I pointed them over to the carrots. And you know the tops of carrots? You sort of have a, a you green... You thought that was parsley? I thought that was parsley, yeah. Uh, I nearly lost my job for it, actually. Really? Did genuinely, genuinely did happen, yeah. What did the customer do? Uh, they bought the carrots and went away. I hope I didn't poison them. Uh, I'm sorry if you're listening. Uh, if you're still alive. If you're still alive, yeah. Yeah, but genuinely, you know, I just didn't know. I, I always yeah. assumed that parsley grew on the top of carrots. Mm-hmm. And that's just down to, to, to poor um, poor education on my part. Well, just to disconnect, you know, yeah. to disconnect generally between everyone and where their food goes. Well, I didn't have my PhD then, you know, so, you know, I wasn't always clever. Ladies and gentlemen, when you have your PhD, you do know that parsley doesn't come that from the top of carrots. That was in my viva. It was in my viva, actually. It was oh, a really? correction, minor correction. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the other one I wanted to talk about was this this um, idea of uh, organic food. So a yeah. lot of people buy organic food. About ninety five percent of people say that they buy it to avoid pesticides. Mm. If you're one of those people listening and you buy organic food, unfortunately, uh, organic farming does and can use pesticides, mm. but it's just a specific list of pesticides mm. they can use. So that's that's one thing that it's quite um, misleading, I think, in some ways. People buy organic food. I'm not. I'm not hammering organic food, by the way. I think. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, I think we as customers should just understand what what these ter- what this terminology means. I think people have to be prepared to pay a little bit more. Yeah. Food that's that's ethically sourced. But I agree. Yeah, the idea that it is completely chemical free in not, this day and age yeah. is completely wrong. It's just false. Yeah. And uh, you know, as well, you know, we all wash our fruit. I hope you wash your I fruit. I do. Yeah, I do. But you know, no matter how many times you're going to wash that, it's still gone through about seven or eight different chemicals. True. Probably. True. In terms of getting to your plate, so it's not going to make that much of a difference. It's sadly we're living in an age now where you have to pay to have less chemicals in your food, which mm. is quite a quite a worrying statement, I think. Mm. But then we have to say as well. Big debate around GM. Yeah, there's a there's huge question marks over its effect on the soil. Yeah, lots of stuff around the copywriting of seeds by big companies. True, Very true. worrying about the food system health effects. However, you could say on the other hand that genetically modified food has prevented famines on mass around has, the world, saved perhaps billions of people from early deaths through through starvation. If we just didn't throw away as much, perhaps um, throw away as waste as much food, that might help. Yeah, this issue as well. These are all systemic issues, aren't they? Yeah. It's good that we're getting to the, the big questions on on this podcast, which yeah. is often mirthful. But we do answer the big questions. <laughs> we do. I don't know if we answer them properly, but we do, we certainly have a go at them. Well, give us another fact then. Well, actually, this one was more um, in the news, so I did a bit of a uh, looking at food in the news. Yeah. And there's this trend in America at the moment um, for agro tourism, this whole uh, farm to plate. So uh, there's these things called pizza farms. I say yeah. things, places called pizza farms where. 
people buy tickets or go along yeah. to specific nights where the, the farm will open their gates and let people in mm. and they will cook pizzas made from all the ingredients on their farm. Mm. So really clever idea. I think it's brilliant. Brilliant bit of marketing. But uh, the people who go along, it's an experience. I've talked in the past about the, the rise of experience, experiences. Okay. Uh, what people want to spend their money on is an experience rather yeah. than a product so much. And they have a uh, walk around the farm and they eat this beautiful pizza that's been made with all the ingredients from the farm. Um, and I suppose that's an introduction to people about modern farming methods because people might sure. think agritourism, go down to the farm, sure. you're expecting a ruddy-faced gentleman farmer, a commonly milkmaid yes. and a, a toothless hick toiling the soil. But not the, not the case. This is going to be modern farming and, you, and all the food you get, to, it's all freshly produced. It's, it's, all, made, it's all made on, on, the, on the premises. That's, that's the idea of most of them anyway. Fantastic. Yeah. So uh, we're going to take a little break. We're going to go and get a breakfast. Why not? It's the morning, Bryce. Yeah, it is the morning. This is usually we do this podcast in the evening. Hopefully, we're sounding a little fresher. A little, a little bit. Yeah. 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 So a bit of breakfast. Uh, we're going to talk about, and the reason we're talking about uh, the breakfast, the, the great English breakfast, is this was one of the um, exhibitions that we saw in the British uh, Museum, which was uh, looking at where our food comes from and actually the great British breakfast isn't as British as we all think. Well, great English, yeah, I mean it's, um, well, yeah, there's very different variations isn't there? You're right, well that's why I want it to be inclusive. Yeah. I want it to be inclusive, uh, but, uh, specifically comes, the English breakfast. Yeah. comes from around the world, the, the ingredients, right? Yeah, okay. we'll talk about that in a bit. Okay. We're back, and as we as we mentioned before, we're going to have a lovely English breakfast. Uh, I've gone for the full English. I don't think you've gone. I've just got a lovely bacon sarnie, a lovely crisp bit of bacon here. And I've a gone bit, for a bit of brown sauce with HP sauce. Really? Yeah. Oh. The pepper as well. Nice. Well, I've gone for the full English. Uh, well, as full as I can I can deal with at this time of the morning. So I've gone for eggs, bacon, sausages. We've got some beans there, some tomato, which I'm not a fan of on a breakfast, but I've got a bit of tomato anyway, just for just for this podcast. Beans have no place in the traditional English breakfast. Well, traditionally, no. Traditionally, if we're going to be a purist about English breakfast, um, I did some research about this. The English there is an English breakfast society you can join if you want. Well, the English breakfast society. Um, can I quote yeah, on the course, yeah. uh, webpage? We here at the Society believe that hash browns and french fries are used as a cheap breakfast plate filler in badly run cafes by people who have no respect for our traditions, end quote. That's a fairly um, strong, adamant declaration on what does and doesn't belong in the English breakfast. I suppose traditionally beans don't belong in the English breakfast. That's a later edition, sure. Well, yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at the, the full English breakfast on the, on the website, they say it's bacon, eggs, British sausages, mm-hmm. uh, baked beans, fried tomato, fried mushrooms, black pudding, fried and toasted bread. So yeah. they actually do include baked beans. And I think if we, if we were to go further back in history, be, yeah, I mean, if they're going to get so militant about hash browns, well, there are there are of course other variants in the British Isles. Like, you know, you've got Irish breakfast, you've yeah. Scottish breakfast, you've your Ulster fry. You know, and the Irish breakfast, of course, has black and white pudding, which, does. which distinguishes it, as well as potato yeah. farls usually. So, but anyway, the English Breakfast Society are quite adamant that there's no place for potatoes there. Well, interestingly, interestingly, 
when we went to the exhibition, it's the Feeding History exhibition. Feeding yeah. History exhibition. Uh, they had a great picture up on the wall about the English breakfast and where the ingredients come from. Yes. And I think you mentioned already, or we certainly talked about it, maybe maybe whilst we weren't recording, but there was only two ingredients on there that we on the British Isles could actually sustain, and that was eggs, or had remained for for many thousands and thousands of years from about 500 BC. The egg. Sure. The sausage. It's egg and sausage. It's pork, yeah. So pork in general. Yeah. And, and, and eggs. Later editions, any of the potato, not to upset the English Breakfast Society, no. any of those potato products, obviously that comes from the Americas. The beans. Those beans, yeah. I mean, we import 100% of those beans. Mm. Uh, even pork now, we, we, we uh, import about 50% of our pork. What too. else is on your plate though? Let me have a look there. You've got uh, mushrooms? Yeah, mushrooms again. Most, again, about just under half of those are imported. Mm. Um, Can I just as well make the point that in terms of my climate discussion earlier on, one thing the world is going to have to do as it develops, especially as China gets wealthier, is stop eating so much meat, especially red meat. It's not so. sustainable. It's not sustainable. It's not good for the planet. Well, red meat sales are falling. Good. They are falling. Um, I don't know if they're falling to sustainable levels, but they're certainly falling at the moment. I am, and I'm going to come out now, going to come out of the closet. Oh. I am a flexitarian. Flexitarian. My students gave me this label. Uh, apparently, it's a perfectly valid label. In that I'll eat essentially veg-based dishes probably five days a week. Yeah. And I have one or two days yeah. of meat, and we have to cut down our meat consumption. Isn't that just an omnivore? And that's a flexitarian. I've got the t-shirt and everything now. Uh, it sounds just like it, what, another label. It just sounds like you're a normal omnivore. No, I'm a flexitarian. Right. You Can you not discriminate, please? Thanks. And we, but we have to cut down our red meat. We do. We do. We do. Good for the sustainability of the planet because it's unsustainable currently. But let's go back to the to the to this breakfast. Oh yes, yeah. Um, do you know much history about the breakfast at all? Enlighten me. Well, uh, the earliest sort of writings or anything we can find about this is sort of the 1300s, and it was seen as a bit of a luxury. So if you were rich, you could actually have a, a full breakfast. Mm. And then uh, it was stayed with the sort of gentry. So mm. they used to have a big feast. They, it was always thought that it was the most important meal of the day. Big fry up. Big fry up. Well, it was different yeah. then. It had fish, um, of course, whole range of fish, fish tongue, whole, whole range of diet then, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so the gentry used to have it probably go on, on a hunt. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it was a Victorian tradition and it became an Edwardian standard. Mm -hmm. so, so, I mean, uh, the, the English Breakfast Society, the militants over there, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. they would presume they would go back to its medieval origins, would they? Or? Sure, there is a bit around the, the origins on, on the website. But it wasn't really till the 1950s that we saw uh, the working class and it becoming really a, a full British tradition. Well, that must be when the old beans come in. Beans which, do, yeah. Which have no place in the, uh, you uh, know, well, the English breakfast and have, been, have now meant that you have to use your sausage as a, effectively a breakwater. <laughs> That's <laughs> why you're defining the role of the sausage in the English breakfast. I might join the English breakfast society at this rate. Well, half the British population in the 1950s used to start their day with a full English. Well, it's set you up for the day if you're a hard, hard working person, right? Well, this is one maybe going into the, the obesity crisis that we have at the moment. I know that in America, this is potentially one of the reasons that, that I think we've, we've talked about this potentially in another, in another podcast, but people used to start their day and have a very calorific diet, mm. but they're becoming 
more sedentary now so they're not burning off those calories so that social norm of having those really calorific meals and it's really ingrained within our society as well with the with the English breakfast mm. but yet we're not burning not burning those calories off anymore you know mm. um, most people don't have a particularly active job especially if you work in an office mm. so um, this is maybe one of the factors these old foods or these old traditions greasy you know, greasy spoons and greasy fry up you know something to sort you out for the rest of the day well it, it would sort you out for the rest of the day if you're out working doing manual labor and burning those calories off but if you're not yeah. then you're just going to get bigger and bigger and we've also been a lot more aware at least since the 70s about heart health sure of course and yeah. uh, you know medical understanding around that and well the, the whole debate which still rages around whether concentration on things that are good or bad for your heart has obscured the sort of creeping additives of other stuff which is also equally bad for you in the yeah. long term. but i suppose more awareness around that but anyway this bacon sandwich was delicious good it's all gone now are you uh have you got someone to introduce big corner this this i've got a very special guest um he's uh, i know that you're into sort of your exp you know i don't really like all this kind of newfangled experimental you know chef kind of stuff i know that okay. you're, you're a fan of it I've got someone, he's a denizen of, okay. of that sort of genre of cooking. Uh, he's he's come in especially. Okay. Um, in fact, should I, should I get him in now? Yeah, sure. Yeah, hang on, just wait there. I, I think he's outside the door. Yep, come in. Hello, hello there. Hello. Hello. Hello, Ersten Blumenthal. Pleased to meet you. Okay. Ersten Blumenthal. I'm an experimental chef. Okay. Yes, and uh, I'm here to introduce Book Corner, but first of all, I'd like to introduce my Lobster Chino Banana Garden Soil Dry Ice Fire Engine Spectacular to you today. Okay. I'm an experimentalist, Clay, as I mentioned. That's why I combine a bald head with glasses. No one before me had ever done that. No one. Harry no, Hill? no one. Harry Hill? No one. Okay. I'm an innovator. I'm an experimental chef. So, I'll take you through this. I've, I've knocked this up this morning. Okay. I've taken some lobster. I've chopped it up. I've chucked it in a blender. I've mixed it with coffee out of one of those machines George Clooney sells. I've added dry ice, I've added some soil from my garden, and I've got my three-year-old son's toy plastic fire engine, which is made in China, by the way. Okay. Now, would you like to try some? No. Well, I've tried some and it's delicious. Really? The richness of the lobster bisque, the metallicity of the plasticky texture of the toy fire engine, it's incredible, Clay. All processed through the fine filter of the George Clooney machine, and it gives it, of course, that percolated delicacy, rounded off with the few drops of soil from my garden, just sprinkled on top. Dry ice, I add dry ice to everything. I'm an experimentalist. Did I mention that? Yeah. Sort of like my signature that is. Heavy on the mentalist, yeah. And then I bake it at 120. Why 120? Because that's my signature baking <laughs> thing. <laughs> and I filmed the cooking process all on my thermal imaging camera. If you take a look, it blitzes itself. It's fantastic. Then, what I've done is I've decanted it into my turbo thermos flask and now I'm going to have a sip. Okay. This is going to be good. Oh, that is delicious. Good, delicious. good. And, and the book? <coughs> yeah, the book I wanted to recommend to you today, Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond. 
It's about the growth of farming, which I know you have been discussing this morning. It's a wonderful book. It's about how the Spanish conquered Latin America, how farming grew in the Fertile Crescent, as your friend Lee Chen mentioned. Yeah. And how we came to the current system. It's basically about the evolution of human societies, how farming enables you to create empires, and then you create empires and you have globalization. And finally, after you read this book, Guns, Germs and Steel, bestseller in America a few years ago, it was Clay. Yeah. Finally, at the top of the pyramid, you have experimentalist chefs like me, Ersten Blumenthal. Great, thanks for that. Thank you, thank you. Well, um, I don't know what to say about that, really. Well, this has been Feeding History on Dr. Scott and the Brother. Any resemblance to persons living or dead, celebrity chefs in the programme is purely coincidental. Really grateful to Yi Chen of the British Museum. It was great. It was really good. Very hot. I had to hydrate a lot after that. It was very hot in her office. It was. But uh, yeah, good little taste. It is a taster ex exhibition. Just it to emphasise that again, it's not a massive exhibition. It's a, it's a room, essentially. But it does get you thinking. Yeah, it does. So from uh, Messi Gareng and Virgil van Tripe. Till the next time. Goodbye.